Welcome to the Sale Street Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. And for more information about our church, visit salestreet.org. This gracious Heavenly Father, you're so worthy. You're so worthy of all of our worship and all of our affection and all of our praise and all of our honor, all glory, all obedience. You're worthy of it all. And so we confess to you that so often. Our zeal for you, it doesn't match your worth. And so we thank you today for your love and your grace and your patience with us. And we thank you that you are growing in us a passion for you. God, I pray that as we open your word together, that you would remove for us, from us any kind of distraction, any kind of dissension that there might be. Help us to focus solely on you. We want to experience your presence in a profound new way. And we want to be about your mission in a more committed way. God, would you speak to us now? Would you bless the reading and preaching of your word? We love you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Well, good morning. Great to be with you as always. Uh, last week, if you missed last week, we began a new study through the Gospel of Mark. And we began by talking about how for us in our culture today, we can feel this continual pull, this continual draw toward a more comfortable and complacent and consumeristic version of Christianity. Do you ever feel that? And so the Gospel of Mark can help us. The Gospel of Mark can help to kind of pull us back and answer some questions like, well, who is Jesus really? And what does it really mean for us to follow him today? Last week, we looked at the first half of his introduction, verses 1 through 8. And today, we're going to look at the second half of his introduction in verses 9 through 13. So if you would grab a Bible, turn there with me. Again, Mark 1, verses 9 through 13. And as you turn there, I just want to ask you to consider for a moment our current situation. And here's what I mean by that. So far today, we've come in, and we've been singing, and we've been praying, and now we've got the Bible in our hands, and we're sitting in this nice, big, comfortable room, and right outside the building, there's a sign by the road, and on that sign, it says church. And so there's no question today as to what we're doing in here. Thankfully for us, we're living in this time and in a place where it's still considered at least a relatively good thing for us to be a Christian. You think about our city right now, all around our city, there are thousands of people in hundreds of congregations, and they're basically doing the same thing as we are. They've gathered in the name of Jesus, and they're singing, and they're praying, and they're hearing the word preached, and many of them, like us, are streaming their services online for the world to see. And so again, we're thankful for this opportunity that we have, but we also need to remember that this isn't the norm for a lot of people around the world. There are a lot of people who today might be gathering together in secret, and they're gathering together at the risk of their safety or their livelihood or their freedom or even their very lives. It's also important for us to remember that for years in the early church, that was their experience as well. And so I've asked us to consider this because even though for us it's kind of a foreign thing to to know what it's like to experience persecution, in order for us to understand most of the Bible— especially the Gospel of Mark, we got to try at least put our, to put ourselves in the shoes of people who do know what it's like. Remember, this is the context in which the Gospel of Mark was written. 
And so to the extent that we can, try to, try to imagine yourself as a Christian in Rome around A.D. 65. Imagine yourself as one who maybe was feeling the temptation to deny Jesus because of the persecution that they were experiencing. You see, in the year 64, there was the great fire of Rome, and this was a, this was a fire that devastated the city. It burned for about a week. It destroyed about 80% of their city, and even though for us, like, we know what it's like for something to come in and destroy the city, but even Hurricane Laura didn't have anything on this fire. 80% of the city just completely destroyed. And so at the time, there were people who, and rightly so, began to wonder if it was actually Emperor Nero's fault. Maybe he's the one that started the fire. And so for a way to him to kind of shift the attention off of him and to blame somebody else, he began to look toward this small group of, you know, anti-Caesar Jesus followers. And so he blamed the Christians for this. And so if you know anything about Nero, you know that he was especially brutal toward Christians. Uh, there are stories about how, in a way to kind of light his garden parties, he would have some Christians covered in tar, light them on fire, and they would light the garden parties. There were stories about how, whenever Christians were arrested, uh, he would have them covered in, in wild animal skins. And so then they would let, the, let dogs loose on them. So when the dogs are, they're thinking they're attacking these wild animals, but they're really attacking the Christians. And probably what's most familiar to us is how there would be thousands of people who would gather together in the Roman Colosseum, and as entertainment for them, they basically watch these Christians get attacked and eaten by lions. And so again, remember, it's to these Christians that Mark wrote his gospel. And so just try to imagine gathering together for worship week after week knowing that you're really gathering at the risk of your own safety. You might actually suffer for your faith. But then one day, coming to the church is this first written account of the person and work of Jesus. This gospel with an emphasis on how Christ, the Son of God, can identify with us because he came as the suffering servant. And it was how through his suffering that sin was overcome for us, and so now we can have eternal life with him. Listen, there's comfort in knowing that Jesus can identify with our weakness, and there's encouragement in knowing that his suffering accomplished the greatest outcome. And so no matter what it might be that we're walking through in life today, whether you're walking through a season of sickness or grieving loss, or even if we get to the point where we do have to suffer because of our faith, we can be comforted and encouraged because the answer to all of life's difficulties, the answer to all of the brokenness that we experience in our life, even the answer to all of life's existential questions is ultimately found, as Mark says, it's in not in the things of the world. And it's ultimately, it's really God who says that the answers to all these things are ultimately found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Remember how verse one begins. He said, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. He says there's good news for us. There's good news because Jesus came as the one that God promised would come, and he'd be the Messiah. He'd be the one to come and rescue the people of God. And then he provides testimony to that. He provides prophetic testimony. And so we saw from Malachi and Isaiah and especially John the Baptist in verses 2 through 8. And so now for us in the second half of his introduction, we're going to see that Mark continues to provide testimony that Jesus is the Son of God. And he does it through the only one that, who's actually qualified to give this testimony. And that's by God himself. And so now picking up in verse 9, 
Let's start by reading through verse 13, then we'll walk back through and break it down. He says, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. And so the first scene we, scene we see here is the baptism of Jesus in verses 9 through 11. And there's a couple things we got to see here. The first is we got to see that Mark is connecting Jesus with the story of creation. And the second thing we can see is, is glimpses into the relationship of the Trinity. And then from there, what we want to do is we just kind of want to take a step back and then ask the question, well, why is Jesus even being baptized in the first place? And so again, let's see how Mark is connecting Jesus back to the story of creation. And so there's something unique about this situation here with the baptism of Jesus. It's really only one of two times in all of the Bible where we see the, the three persons of the Trinity manifesting themselves in such a direct and in such an obvious way. Now, I'm not saying that at any point they've ever been disconnected or separated or not always working together, nothing like that. I'm just saying that this moment is unique because they are manifesting themselves in such a direct and obvious way. The only other place in the Bible where it's like this is in the story of creation. In Genesis 1, 1 through 3, that's going to be on the screens for us. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And so notice the similarities with these two stories. You've got the father speaking in both. You've got in the creation story, you've got the spirit hovering over the waters. In the baptism story, you've got the spirit descending down out of heaven, coming upon Jesus, but he's over the baptismal waters. And then here, if you're looking at the creation story and you're wondering, well, okay, so I see the Father and I see the Spirit, but where's God the Son? Well, for that, we need some explanation from John chapter 1, again, on the screens for us. There again, it says, in the beginning, same wording as Genesis 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And he explains further in verse 14, he says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so where's Jesus in Genesis 1? He's the word of God in the creation story. How all that works, we're not going to really know on this side of heaven, but Jesus is there. We've got these two parallel pictures, but then why? Why is Mark connecting Christ back with creation? And the answer is this, so that we might realize today that the Father, Son, and Spirit who are active in creation are the same Father and Son and Spirit who are active in redeeming creation through Jesus Christ. Jesus, who we see here, is affirmed by the Father as the Son of God. And when we see this, we've got this profound moment where we get these glimpses into the relationship of the Trinity. 
The first interaction we see is between God the Son and God the Spirit in verse 10. Look at with me. He says, when he came up out of the water, Jesus is being baptized. He comes up out of the water. Immediately, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. I love that Mark begins his gospel with the heavens being torn open, and he ends the gospel with the, the veil in the temple being torn apart, right? It's the same word being used there. And it's really the same meaning for us that now we can draw near. We can be near to God. And so here again, we've got the heavens being torn open, the spirit descending down, and he is enveloping the sun with power. And this is the pattern we see in scripture. The spirit empowers Jesus to do all his miraculous works, and he glorifies the son, and he teaches what the son taught, and he is continuing his Jesus-glorifying work in us today. And then when you hear Jesus talk about the spirit, think about how he talks about the spirit. Like when he's talking to his disciples and he's like, yeah, I'm about to go away, but listen, you've got to know this. It's for your benefit that I go away. If I don't go away, then you're not going to have the Holy Spirit. And that is so hard for us to imagine that it could possibly be to our benefit that Jesus would leave. But he says it is because then you'll get to have the Holy Spirit. He'll get to live in each one of you and he will empower you to continue the ministry that I began. He's going to empower you to make disciples among all nations. And so he is glorifying the spirit in return. And so what you see among the spirit and the son is this mutual glorification that's happening here. And it's been happening for all of eternity. Then in verse 11, verse 11 you see this interaction between the son and the father. So you've got God the father speaking words of validation and affirmation over his son. And there's something powerful about words of affirmation, isn't there? You know, for us, uh, you know, we, we kind of have these core memories that are created. You know, and some of them are memories of rejection, and some are memories of affirmation. And I was thinking about that for me, and I was thinking about how really it's kind of an amazing thing that we have these memories, even from childhood, where somebody who we respected kind of spoke some words over us, and we've never forgotten it. And so I was remembering two, two instances from whenever I was 11 or 12 years old. And uh, one was from when I was playing Little League Baseball. And I was playing a Little League Baseball game, and I think I was playing second base. And for whatever reason, the other team just continually was, was hitting it in my direction. They probably found the weak link. But, but just so happened that that game, I was, I was just having a good game. And so I was fielding the, fielding the ball as well and catching them all and everything like that. Just had a good game. And so I remember after the game, I heard my coach talking about me. My coach was somebody who I really respected. And he said it, I heard him say, I can still remember the exact wording. He said, man, I've never seen a kid take over a game like that on the defensive side of things. Like, I've never seen a kid do that. And so for me in that moment, I just was, man, I was on cloud nine. I was, I was beaming because I heard some validation and affirmation from my coach. Uh, another instance growing up was when uh, I got some words of affirmation from my uncle, my uncle Gary. And uh, my uncle Gary was one, he was like in every way, he was like a man's man. Like he was military, he was, he could build anything, he could fix anything. He spent like every day of his life hunting and fishing. I mean, and so he was great in all these ways, but he wasn't the greatest as far as like, you know, speaking words of affirmation. He was a great guy, sweet guy, did a lot for you, just you know, it wasn't always the words coming out. And so any, any moment of affirmation, man, you really held on to that. And uh, I really looked up to him and I really respected him. And I remember one morning he had 
taking me duck hunting. And, uh, and so we're sitting there in the blind and some ducks come in. And uh, so we hop up and we knock a couple down. But there was this one duck that, that kind of, you know, flew over to the side and was fl- uh, flying behind us. And normally in that moment, I probably would have just kind of paused and let him take it. But for whatever reason, I was just on it. And so I jumped up and I was like standing on top of the blind, spinning around. And even though it was kind of far off, I shot and I folded him and he dropped. And in that moment, I'd never seen my uncle get so excited. He was like, oh, what a shot. What a great shot. I'd never seen him so excited. And so I'm feeling pretty cool about it. And then, you know, we finished up our hunt, and we're heading back into the duck camp. And there were other, some friends and family there that were finishing up too. And if I'd have gone back in and if I'd have said, hey, y'all got to hear this story. You should have seen my shot. They'd have been like, okay, kid, that sounds nice. I'm sure it was great. But for my uncle to come in and to tell that story, they were locked in, man. And they were, like, so impressed by that moment. And see, you see, the thing about this is what we have in verse 11 is so much greater than a, than a coach that we respect, telling some words of affirmation, so much better than even a good uncle. This is God the Father. And even if you consider what I had in those moments, I mean, I had words of affirmation that were spoken over to me really because of something that I had done. I'd played well, I'd made a good shot, but really what you have here is you've got the father affirming his son Jesus before he goes into ministry. And so it isn't, here's what you've done and now I'm affirming you, it's here's who you are. And you're my son, you're God in the flesh and I want everybody to know it. I love my son and with you I'm well pleased. And this is the pattern of scripture. You know, one of the greatest kind of peaks behind the curtain is in John 17. There, Jesus is talking to his father. And it says, when Jesus spoke these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. And so that means he's headed to the cross. And he says, glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. Since you've given him authority over all flesh, you give eternal life to all whom you've given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. It's like they're one and the same. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. You know, normally when you get kind of that peek behind the curtain, things are worse than what you thought, you know? You think about that scene in The Wizard of Oz, peek behind the curtain, it's just some guy pulling levers. It's not really what they thought. But when you get a peek behind the curtain of the Trinity, it's so much better. You see this loving exchange of glory and affection and service to one another. And this has been the case for all of eternity. Do you know what C.S. Lewis called this? He called it the dance. This eternal exchange of love and glory among the Trinity. And so for us, this is especially meaningful for us to see. Because it was out of an overflow of that eternal exchange of love and glory that mankind was created. Genesis 1.26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. We were designed to reflect the nature of the Trinity. We were designed to relate to God and to one another like the Trinity does, with love going out, with affirmation going out, with joy going out, with this mutual service to one another, with no self-centeredness that's at the core of it. But as much as we long for this, and we know we long for this, and like our hearts are longing for this kind of an experience, we know that that isn't the human condition. We know that naturally people don't relate to one another like that. And Romans 5.12 explains it. 
It says, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Romans 5.12 says that, listen, we've, we've all sinned. We're all responsible for this. We've all sinned, and it started with Adam. He says, in the beginning, there was this exchange that took place. Adam exchanged. It's hard for us to imagine. He exchanged perfect communion with God for self-centeredness, for selfish gain. He exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and that's really what it was. That temptation of selfishness is always a lie that can never be fulfilled. And so whatever you're telling yourself today of like, hey, look, I'll just kind of say this lie. I'll just kind of get around it. Nobody will know. You're not going to be the only person who's ever existed that's going to get away with something. You're not going to bend the fabric of reality and then act like, oh, it's going to work out perfectly for me. It's never happened before. That temptation to sin is always a lie. It's never going to fulfill the promise that it makes to you. It never will. Sin came into the world through Adam. And so we've also been these willing participants in it. We're not just victims in it. We have been willful participants. And because if we're without Christ, then we're separated from communion with God and life as it is meant to be lived. Without Christ, think about it. What do we do? And we're constantly looking for validation in the wrong places. So we look for religion. We look to success. We look to relationships to fill that void in us instead of looking to God. And then without Christ, we're always looking to pleasure in the wrong places. We're looking for uh, comfort, looking to gluttony, looking to self-indulgence instead of looking to God. But it's for this reason that Jesus came, to redeem us back into a right relationship with God. And this is what helps us to answer the question of why Jesus was baptized. And so think about that. If Jesus was sinless, then why would he need to go and be baptized? You know, you think about a couple weeks ago, we had such an amazing picture of baptism. On Christmas Day, whenever John Maxey got in the baptismal, and then he read from Psalm 51, which I'd never really thought that much about it being this perfect psalm that describes what's going on in baptism. And in that psalm, it says, I need you to forgive me of my sin. I need you to wash me of my iniquity. And so John needed that, and we needed that, but not Jesus. Jesus was sinless and perfect, and so why is he getting in that baptismal water? Why is he getting baptized by John the Baptist? We'll look back at verse 9 and just think about this whole scene. Like we saw last week, there are crowds of people who are going out to get baptized by John the Baptist. So he's baptizing one after another. He's getting people ready for the coming Messiah. And as he does, remember, he tells the crowd, he goes, look, I know you think I'm something special, but I'm not because the one who's going to come, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals because when he comes, even though I'm baptizing with water, he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. And that's really what you need. And then John 1 describes, it says, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. And when John saw him, he goes, oh, look, guys, behold. He says, look, that's the one. He's the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. He tells the people, that's him. He's the one. But then it says that Jesus continues forward at John, and he asks John for him to be baptized. In Matthew chapter 3, it basically says that that John says, he goes, Jesus, look, I, I think you've got this backwards. This is a baptism of repentance. If anything, he says, I need to be baptized by you. And so rightly so, but in Matthew chapter 3, it also says in verse 15, he says, Let it be so for now, for thus it's fitting for us to fulfill 
all righteousness. Jesus says, I've come to fulfill all righteousness. And so what does that mean? Jesus says, I don't need to repent because I'm sinless, but this is a way for me to identify with you who are sinful. And so what we've got here is Jesus, in a sense, is this new or second Adam. The first Adam, when he came, he infected all of humanity with with sin and death, but Jesus comes and he overcame it on our behalf. And so we might think that we only need Jesus to come and die on a cross, but we don't really need him to come and be born and live this perfect life. If he could just come and die on a cross, it's really all that we need, but actually, as amazing as it is, and as much as we needed that, we needed more. Because if he would have only died on the cross, he would have only paid our, for our sins. He would have kind of wiped the slate clean, so to speak. But we wouldn't have the righteousness that we need to stand before God. And so when Jesus comes and he lives this perfect life, he is not only dying a substitutionary death, but he lived a substitutionary life. Jesus didn't need to be baptized. And so we could look at this moment as, a, as an act of substitutionary repentance, So that when we place our faith in Jesus, we not only receive forgiveness from him because of his sacrificial death, but we also receive his righteousness because of his perfect life. This is the gospel of Jesus, that we're redeemed and reconciled back to into that dance of the Trinity that we were made to experience through the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. God himself didn't need to repent and believe, but we do. Because of our sin, we do. And when we do, then our testimony becomes the same as the Father's testimony. When we now say we love Jesus and in him we're so well pleased. But then the amazing thing happens is when we have faith in Jesus, the affirmation from the Father now becomes the affirmation over us. And he looks at you and he says, in Christ, you are my beloved child. With you, I am well pleased. He looks at you in Christ and he says, look, I know your past. I know the junk you're hiding right now. I know the mistakes you're going to make in the future. I know all of this stuff. But if you're in Christ, I'm not looking at you. I'm looking at the perfection of my son, the delight I have in my son, and I'm speaking that over you. And so we've got to receive that word of affirmation today that the Father says, if you're in Christ, he says, you are my beloved child. With you, I am well pleased. There's nothing we can take away from that. There's nothing we can add to it because we don't need to. He says, with you who are in Christ, I am well pleased. And this call on Jesus' life to fulfill all righteousness, it's also, I believe, the connection between his baptism and his temptation in verses 12 through 13. And so listen, in his baptism, Jesus identifies with us. And in his temptation, Jesus overcomes for us. You see that? Look at verse 12. The picture of the Trinity continues here. It doesn't stop at his baptism. It even continues in his temptation. It says the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And so from his baptism, he doesn't just kind of wander off. He doesn't get lost. It says God the Spirit drove him there. As one commentator said, the Father planned it, the Spirit empowered Jesus in it, and Jesus submitted to it. And similar to how the baptism of Jesus kind of pulls us back to that story of creation, what we've got here is it connects us back to the Old Testament in a few different places. Look at verse 13. It says, and he was in the wilderness 40 days. He's trying to kind of pick up some of these words, like what it might make you kind of connect back with in the Old Testament. He was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. 
And so the first thing he connects us back with is Israel's wandering in the desert for 40 years. When he uses those words wilderness and 40, that's what should, we should connect that with in our minds. Even in Exodus chapter 4, Israel is described as God's son. And so whenever Israel goes out into the wilderness and when they're tested and tempted, they failed. But what we've got here with Jesus, he is the, now the true and better Israel who not only identifies with Israel, but he was the one who could overcome. Secondly, Mark connects us back with the fall of Adam and Eve when Satan was tempted by, or when they were tempted by Satan in Genesis chapter 3. And so assuming that most of us know that story, notice the contrast, though, between these two stories. And some of these details we got to get from the other Gospels, but you've got with Adam and Eve, they're in a garden. They're tempted in this beautiful, lush garden, but Jesus is out there in the desert. With Adam and Eve, they are full of good food and drink, but Jesus had been fasting for 40 days. You've got Adam and Eve, they had perfect communion with one another, but Jesus is out there alone. But what we've got similar in both stories is the tactic of Satan. He sows the seeds of doubt through deception. All At the root of all temptation is the question, will I believe God and obey his word? Think about it. That's at the root of all of this, all of Satan's temptation is that will I believe God and obey his word? And so to, to Adam and Eve, Satan said, did God really say that? Did he really say that? Did he really mean that? Surely that can't be true. And so when they were faced with that temptation, they failed. But again, Jesus not only identifies, he overcomes. And in Matthew chapter 4, we can see how. Like we learned in Ephesians chapter 6, he uses the sword of the spirit, the word of God. Matthew 4, verses 3 to 10 says, And the tempter came, that's Satan, he's the tempter. He came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, It's written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, well then throw yourself down, for it's written, He'll command his angels concerning you, and on their hands he'll bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again it's written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said to him, all these things I'll give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And so notice, notice this, after Jesus receives that affirmation from the Father, he hears, you are my beloved son. What does Satan say? How does he challenge him? How does he tempt him? He says, if you really are the son of God. And so for us, we've got to remember that when our affirmation from God is questioned, it's always a tactic of Satan. And so when he comes to you and he whispers that little, little, little lie in your ear, when he says things like, you know what, you're, you're not really good enough. Like, I've seen the mistakes that you're making. You really can't be a child of God. I saw what you've done. You're just not good enough for him. Then we can remind Satan that Jesus not only identifies with our temptation, but he's overcome on our behalf. Our standing with God is not based on anything we've done. It's based on what Jesus has done. And so now for us, we can overcome, and it's by his power. Thirdly, what he connects us back with is Psalm 91 where we see both wild animals and angels together. 
In verses 11 to 13 of Psalm 91, it says, For God will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they'll bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Does that sound familiar? That's what Satan used to tempt, to tempt Jesus. He's quoting scripture at him. It says, You'll tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will tramp, trample underfoot. But Psalm 91 also says in verses 1 and 2, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. That was the confession of Jesus in his temptation. Hebrews 4.15 says that Jesus was tempted in every way that we are, yet he was without sin. And you know, it's also possible that for Mark here, when he mentions the wild animals, because the other gospels don't. The other Gospels are far more descriptive in this story. But Mark just kind of just jumps right in it, says it, but he makes this mention of wild animals. It could be that possibly he's kind of given a nod to those early Christians in Rome who knew what it was like to experience that attack of the wild dogs, that attack from the lions, as if he's telling them, listen, Jesus has been there, and Jesus can identify with you. But even more than that, he overcame for you. And because he did, that same spirit that empowered him is now the one that is empowering you in the midst of difficulty and temptation. Jesus was the Christ. He was the Son of God who fulfilled all righteousness so that we could enter back into that perfect relationship with the Trinity and experience life as it was meant to be lived in perfect communion with God and with one another for all of eternity. And so as I was thinking about this passage for us this week, I was just kind of reflecting on it and, and considering how so often when we look at a passage of Scripture, the appropriate application for us is to take action, right? Like so often we're compelled to give or to go. And in response to this pas passage, we should feel that, right? We should feel this compulsion to go and share the good news with people. And so maybe sometime today, consider and pray who God might be preparing in your life for you to share that good news, but also... Before we go and before we give, what we've got to do with this passage is we've first got to receive and we've got to rest. If this passage shows us anything, it's that all of our effort and all of our works and all of our striving gets us nowhere closer to God. And so God had to come to us. He identified with us and he overcame for us. And it's only through receiving his righteousness and resting in his work that we can be saved. Let's pray together. God, we love you, and we thank you for your word. And so I pray that all of us here this morning, that we would receive everything you've done for us, that you came and you could identify with us in every way. You knew what it was like to experience suffering. You knew what it was like to experience temptation, even more so than we've ever experienced it. But yet you overcame on our behalf. And so now we receive that and we rest in it and we want to walk in your power. We love you and I pray that we would worship you with more zeal and with more passion because we remember the truth of the gospel. That you came for us when we couldn't get our way to you. And you loved us first before we loved you. And so now we do say, we confess with the Father Jesus, we love you. We delight in you. With you, we are well pleased. Pray this in Christ's name, amen.